0: Welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. This is your friendly neighborhood podcast host, Daniel Bauer. Better Leaders, Better Schools is a weekly show for ruckus makers. And what is a ruckus maker? A leader who has found freedom from the status quo. A leader who makes change happen. A leader who never, ever gives up. Imagine for just a second that your mission was to help young people, identify, navigate, and then challenge oppression. You'd agree that this is important work, right? The problem, though, is when you introduce this aspect. You think students will take this and apply it to systems of oppression outside the school. But what you might find is that they look in the mirror And they look at the school and they see oppression that they need to address today while at your building. Today's guests is Darren Graves and Scott Sider. They're the authors of a wonderful new book about schooling for critical consciousness. And they tell a few stories of schools that have dropped the ball introducing critical consciousness to their faculty and students and helping kids identify, navigate, and challenge oppression. They'll also share stories that are uplifting of, of uh, school communities that really took this idea and ran with it in a across organizational lines and in a very systematic approach. Uh, they were wonderful to have on the show, and I'm so glad to be bringing this topic to you today. So Ruckus Maker, thanks for being here. And before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to take some time to thank our show sponsors. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by Organized Binder, a program designed to develop your student's executive function and non-cognitive skills. Learn more at at organizedbinder.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. It's basically like a Fitbit for teachers, helping them be mindful of teacher talk versus student talk. Get a special 20% discount for your school or district by visiting teachfx.com. If you're waiting for your district to develop you, don't hold your breath. What would you be able to accomplish if you poured jet fuel on your leadership development? Rob, a principal in North Carolina, had this to say about his mastermind experience. I have found myself trying more things because I know that I have the support from other amazing school leaders to help guide me through if I get stuck. Turn your dreams into reality and level up your leadership. Apply to the Mastermind today at betterleadersbetterschools.com forward slash mastermind. Hello, Ruckus Baker. I'm joined by a dynamic duo today, Scott Sider and Darren Graves. Scott is an associate professor of education at Boston College, where his research focuses on the civic development of adolescents. He's a former high school English teacher in the Boston Public Schools. Darren Graves is an associate professor of education at Simmons University, where his research lies at the intersection of racial identity, critical race theory, and teacher education. He's the co chair of the American Educational Research Association's special interest group on hip hop in education. Guys, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Thanks Thanks so much for having us.
0: So Scott, let's start with you. You worked with a school that reacted poorly to your idea of critical consciousness. Bring us to that moment.
2: Sure. So Darren and I spent the last... Five or six years thinking about the ways in which schools can engage engage young people in learning to recognize and resist oppression, and um, and what, really what we did is we sort of identified a bunch of schools that we felt like were were really promising in in their ability to do this work, and we and we just spent a lot of time in those schools learning from from what they were doing. There was. There was one school that started in our in our project, and eventually we we decided to, to move away from that school because of an incident where we felt like they they weren't supporting young people's ability to recognize and resist depression. Let me tell you what the what what happened. Um, so so this was a school that 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 had been doing some things curricularly and programmatically to to engage young people in learning to to recognize oppression, to engage in resisting oppression. For instance, they had had engaged the young people in their school in the opportunity to to protest at the the state legislature for additional educational funding for for education in the state. And and the young people had developed some activist skills as a result of opportunities like that. And then what happened, and I think this is in many ways a really exciting thing, is that the young people in the school realized that, that they wanted to apply those activist skills they were developing Towards towards issues and concerns they had within the school community itself, and and specifically the young people in the school who are primarily African American and Latinx felt concerned about the lack of, of racial diversity among the teaching faculty. It was a largely white teaching faculty, and after sort of a series of, of steps, the young people in the in the school decided to stage a walkout to protest the lack of racial diversity in their in amongst their teaching faculty. And the, so the young people did a lot of planning and engaged in this. In this walkout, and I recognize that this is a challenging moment for for school leaders, um, and that there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of there's a lot of issues to contend with in that moment. And yet, I also think it's crucial for school leaders to remember that that civic development is part of of our mission as educators, and to recognize that yes, like I mean, a safety concerns have to come first, and learning concerns, and so on and so forth. But but there also is a teachable moment happening. Here. And I think that we need to respect young people and, and engage with them about this really, in, in many ways, very admirable activist effort in which they were engaged. And, and this school that we were studying sort of did the opposite. They you know, they started threatening the students to, um, to come in. They started saying, like, you won't be able to, you know, you're going to get zeros in your classes. You won't be able to play on the sports teams that you play on. They wouldn't let the young people come in to use the bathrooms during the during the course of the school day. They started saying, "If you're not officially here and in school, like you won't be able to take the buses home at the end of the day." And I just think that, again, like I have an, an enormous amount of empathy for the for the many responsibilities that a school leader has on their plates. But I also think it's important to kind of recognize that there's a teachable moment here, and and also to sort of to respect the young people enough to to take their concerns seriously, to engage with them as as citizens within this school community, and. And so so the, the bottom line was that like the school that we were that we were looking at really really dropped the ball in this in this moment. And and we ultimately sort of made the decision that that maybe that wasn't a school that was that was going to exemplify the the critical consciousness work that we were interested in writing about.
0: You know, and Darren, you have an interesting story uh, about a teacher who felt his school wasn't doing enough. So maybe they were dropping some balls, but not all of them. Yeah. Well, I just, I remember you saying that he he created a space, right, for his class to dive in. And the reason I want you to tell this story is because, you know, the listener of the show is a ruckus maker, somebody who breaks free from the status quo, never, ever gives up, makes change happen. And, And what I want to illustrate or have you illustrate is that even when you feel like the system may be working against you or betraying you, you can, you still have a voice, you still have power. And so I'll zip my lip here, and, and Darren, if you'll continue with the story.
1: I appreciate that, Dan. I think the story that Scott just told reflects a tension in this work for, for folks working in schools, trying to do critical consciousness work, um, a tension that educators are, are going to face that this, te- this particular teacher that I'm about to talk about sort of was naming very very uh implicitly and was trying to think about how to navigate it right and so the tension is as follows right if we are teaching students to recognize and resist oppressive forces right two things are going to happen one (laughs) a lot of the you know the ways in which the the places in which they're going to perceive that happening Is often their own their own schools, their own context, right? And so I think a lot of educators come into this thinking about, okay, we they're thinking about what we were thinking about goals of like how are we going to get young folks actively, you know, civically actively engaged out in the world with these big problems that we're that we have to tangle with, right? And so I think a lot of educators think about the product of this, you know, of the of the skills and the dispositions we're trying to teach the students happening outside of school, right? But really, most often it's going to happen in school. It's going to happen in their schools, right? Because these systems of oppression are so pervasive. They're going to be happening within schools, right? And so I think one of the things that, that educators and leaders are going to have to get their heads around is, and, and, and sort of come to grips with is that when you do this work, you know, as Scott's story just illustrated, they're going, to be, they're, going to, they're going to start to make the focus of their skill development the school and the context that they're, they're in. The second part is going to be, and this is what the, I'm going to, I'm going to come into the story, trust me. And this is what, this is what this teacher was. I was talking to this teacher who ran basically sort of like a co-curricular extracurricular sort of eighth period, you know, there might be like seven periods a day and they had a sort of eighth period model where they would, you know, let students kind of carve out in particular, you know, particular intellectual spaces that they were interested in in constructing and have teachers co-facilitate that. And so this teacher that I was talking to was co-facilitating co- a. It was I think it was a debate club actually, where they were debating really cool topics like around issues of like black death and black silence and a whole a lot of great concepts that the students themselves were really interested in. But what it really surfaced for him, right, was that they were and they were in a school by the way that had well you know relatively stricter behavioral dispositional kind of norms or, or that they were enforcing right in the school. So in other words, there was, there was a, you know, it was a very much a school that, that control that you know, had control over bodies. Right. And, and, you know, for, for good reasons, I think, but very, but still control over bodies. And, and what he was, what this teacher was realizing was that in order for them to embody the things that they were learning about in these classes around, you know, recognizing racism, trying to fight against racism, they would have to be able to display dispositions and behaviors within the school, within this classroom space, even just to learn these issues, right, that we're going to be in conflict with the behavioral norms that, might, that we might find in our, you know, everyday class, right? And so, and then he was thinking, well, wait, well, it, and to the extent that this is going to not just exist in some extracurricular space, right, or co-curricular space, how do we, you know, the classroom classroom dynamic, the student-teacher dynamic is going to have to change. If we're going to authentically allow students to embody, you know, principles of questioning authority, civil disobedience, these things that are all part of the process of challenging, you know, oppressive systems. He felt like there was not a space in school besides the little eighth period, you know, cocoon that he had created for them, which, which Tim felt very subversive, right? Because he basically had to carve out a space that was very different from the rest of the school. And so it really speaks to the second notion is, yeah, one notion is students are going to practice these dispositions in schools. The other notion is that then we have to think about what is our relationship with students, right? If we're going to have a positional authority, hierarchical authority relationship, yes, I understand we're going to have accountability, we have roles and responsibilities, but if we can't see our, if we we always have to see ourselves as controlling the bodies and controlling the students, right? As as opposed to learning with them and, and, and meeting them where they're at, I um, mean, being more having more of a reciprocal model, we're not going to be able to help them do this work.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition there, like a classic school thinking more about controlling versus a, a modern school responsive to the kids in front of them, partnering with those students on the journey.
1: And what I like, if I could just add one more thing, what I really liked about this school and is in just a position to the 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 school that Scott was talking about is this school began to recognize this. and they they made uh, way the leadership, right? The leader of the school, in particular, the principal, made uh, a space in the culture, made us time, right? and and articulated that there was possibilities for movement in how we do things. and i and what we were really, struck by with this particular school, which I think it had probably was one of the more stricter, you know, no excuses type schools, like it definitely, we saw a, a dynamic shift in the school from when we started there in the beginning of that, you know, that when we were watching the students in ninth grade to, to when they got to 12th grade, we, it was probably the only school where we actually saw an honest to goodness, like shift in an attempt to like, you know, respond and make a course correction based on what they were learning from their students.
0: I can only imagine how rewarding that is for you then engaging in this work.
1: It was nice to see just from an, as an educator and someone who wants this work to happen. And it was also just as a researcher, also really cool to see, to be privileged, to be able to like step back and see the shift as well. Too, So, and, and, and it may, and it gives me hope both as a researcher and an educator that like you can make changes in schools and the cultures, right? Often you think of school cultures as so intractable, but I, that was a real positive thing for me to see.
0: Yeah, so let's talk a bit about changing uh, school culture. And Scott, you have an uplifting example of a civics class that asked a scary question. They said, find a policy that exists here in our school that's out of date. And what happened there, Scott?
2: That's right. And I would actually say really like our, our book, Schooling for Critical Conscious," really looks at the schools we studied and sort of identifies the those uplifting practices and those promising practices for for engaging young people in learning to analyze, navigate, and challenge oppression. And so, so one example, as you kind of mentioned, one of the schools that we were studying, um, the school we call a Spiritu High School, in 11th grade, all students took a civics class. Um, and a unit within the civics class was for the students as a class to look through the school handbook and identify a policy they perceived to be either unfair or unjust. And then they had to engage in the work to, to change that policy. And so what did that look like? That looked like so the the young people that we were studying, they chose the school's technology policy. They felt the school had a pretty no technology in the classroom policy, and the students felt like that was outdated and didn't sort of support their learning in in kind of ways that were, you know, that that were appropriate. And so the first thing they did is they did research. They actually sort of went into databases and Google Scholar and the library and and looked for research on the role that technology can play in in supporting and inhibiting learning. And they took that research. And they, as a class, work to form work to put together an alternative proposal, like a new way of um, that the school might consider think, treating technology. And so, so this particular group of young people, they um, they propose that. Students should be issued a technology pass, and that there should be certain times of the day where technology is imp- appropriate and encouraged, and, and that there are ways that you could lose your technology pass by, you know, by virtue of sort of not using the technology in sort of school appropriate ways. But they they really worked hard to kind of put together a proposal that they felt like would suit their learning needs better and and kind of take advantage of the, the opportunities that that technology can play in in the learning process. And then the young people put together a presentation. They had to sort of work together to put together and practice a presentation that after you know substantial practice and revision, they ultimately sort of went to um, a faculty meeting um, of the full faculty and presented their, their research and their proposal and took questions and, and sort of made this pitch for a new way of thinking about um, the use of technology in the school. And, and really cool, the, the faculty sort of Thanked them for the presentation, sort of met met sort of as a faculty, and ultimately sort of sent them a letter saying, "Hey, like we really we really like the points you're making. We have these additional questions, you know, about um, about what it would mean to switch to this policy." And the students so had to go back into the research and kind of you know formulate answers to those questions, and then ultimately, and I think this kind of reflects. You know, what what I would describe as sort of a really wise response on the part of faculty and leadership within this school, what the faculty ultimately voted to do is they said, hey, let's we vote to adopt this new technology policy for the remainder of the school year. Let's let's try it out, let's see how it goes. And if it works great, then then we're gonna make this change a permanent one in our in our our school handbook and our school policies, and if it doesn't work, then we'll sort of automatically revert back to to what we had before, and it'll be up to another another sort of set of stakeholders to to work on reforming again. and And I think that that decision felt incredibly empowering to the young people that we spoke to um, in this school. Like they felt like they had worked very hard to to think through what uh, you know a better policy would be, and I think they felt really respected by by their teachers for listening to them. And then, sort of responding to them very earnestly, and then choosing to, you know, respecting their, their, the students' perceptions and sort of perspectives enough to, to try on the policy that the students were adopting. So I would describe that as an example of a school that was sort of using its, its civic community, the school civic community, to foster students' political agency, like their belief that they can actually affect change within a community. And there's sort of clear research by, um, by Albert Bandura and others that sort of, that those sort of opportunities within school to, to strengthen kids' sense of political agency have real implications for, for the other communities that they, that they live in and sort of will live in as adults.
0: Well, back to what uh, Darren shared with us, a school as a controller versus a, as a partner. Here you see them really engaging in the dialogue with students, you know, and and enjoy, it seems like really enjoying the process. I love that they adopted what what the kids ended up proposing. I'm really curious about the letter. Do you have any more details about like why they chose to use that format to respond to the kids? It's a really good question. I think
2: it was because they wanted the young people to do some more work. You know, so for instance, like one of their one of the sort of questions in the letter was, hey, you've presented in your presentation, you presented all this research about the benefits of technology and learning, but you didn't really present about some of the you, you didn't really present about some of the studies that might show that listening to music while you're doing your work reduces your, you know, your attention. Like did you, I remember there was a phrase, did you do selective research? And they really, they really pushed the students to to respond to that question. And, you know, and another question, even sort of more specific, you know, students had found some research about the positive role of music in sort of listening to music while you're doing your work. And, and the teachers wrote back, like, you know, we haven't looked at the research, but we wonder if a lot of those studies are focused on classical music, you know, where there's no, or music where there's no lyrics, like instrumental music. Is it different if you're sort of trying to do work and, and that you're listening to music with lyrics? And they were sort of, and so they really asked the, you know, and so I think they were, I think the letter was intended to be sort of formal. You know, it was like we are we are treating this process in a serious and formal way. And so here is sort of an official response to to the important work you've done. We're asking for some more work. And I think these students experienced it as a as a show of respect again, like that the student, that the faculty sort of took the time to, to author this response and you know and give them a chance to you know to to dig back into the research and come back to them again.
0: Great. Well, appreciate you digging in there a little bit deeper. We're going to pause here just for a moment for a message from our sponsors. But when we get back, Darren has a story about senior year long projects that you do not want to miss. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder is an evidence based RTI tier one universal level solution and focuses on improving executive functioning and non cognitive skills. You can learn more and improve your student success at OrganizeBinder.com. The Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is brought to you by TeachFX. School leaders know that productive student talk drives student learning, but the average teacher talks 75% of class time. TeachFX is changing that with a Fitbit for teachers that automatically measures student engagement and gives teachers feedback about what they could do differently. Learn more about the TeachFX app and get a special 20% discount for your school or district by visiting teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All right, and we're back, Ruckus Maker, with Scott and Darren, authors of Schooling for Critical Consciousness. And Darren is going to talk about how some schools have embraced critical consciousness through year-long senior projects with an action component.
1: Yeah, it was really, this was a really, I think, inspiring thing to see. Um, You know, when I was talking before, I was talking a lot about the ways in which students are going to practice these skills and dispositions, you know, within the walls of their school, because that's going to be a safe place for them to do it. It's going to be a relevant place for them to do it. But the example that I'm about to talk about is really about uh, projects that, yes, I'll mention definitely did have effects within the school, but was really, uh, was really geared towards having students bring their work, bring this critical consciousness outside the walls of school, which I thought was uh, very powerful. And so this particular school, Freedom Prep, it was one of our schools in the book. The seniors would engage in, this, in these year-long, basically action projects. Where they would choose uh, a topic, an issue usually of, usually of social significance or definitely of social significance, usually quite significant to their own lives for a variety of, in a variety of ways, and basically would engage on like a year long project to yeah, both do you know the research right about the, the issue and the background research and things like that, but also then more even more importantly, to then plan an action part of the project in which they would then, at the very least, you know, disseminate information to, to a larger audience about what they might have learned, if not in directly engaging the community in the work. And so the one example that I just found really exciting, there's many of them, right? there were students who were doing fundraisers for um, different types of, maybe for asthma or diabetes, there was just lots of different things going on. But the one that was really Exciting to me was, you know, the you know this particular school, Freedom Prep, was in, you know, a community um, that has a lot of history, and as it also is a community that it was going, it is going through some very severe forms of gentrification, right? And so some real, you know, questions about the identity of the community, resources in the community, who lives in the community, right? So it's it's very much I I loved it because you know often schools happen as if the community just doesn't exist around them. It's It's almost like the school creates like a community vacuum. Right. And it creates a weird situation for students who are like navigating these issues on a daily basis, then come into school and then all that stuff's supposed to go away. But so in this particular, you know, project, the student did a whole, you know, research project about gentrification, you know, in general, gentrification in their neighborhood in particular, and then organized a panel, like a like a, a weeknight or I think it was a weeknight. It was an after school week, weeknight or weekend event in which the audience was community members, right? from their neighborhood and which she uh, which this student invited um, I believe you know someone who a few community activists I think one of them might have even been uh, involved in the government in the city government to, to have this like this panel presentation about gentrification in their neighborhood that, that this student led I mean it was amazing and it was just it was for the community it wasn't just like a bunch of you know our fellow students and teachers in there it was very much something that this student you know made happen In her community, for her community, you know, had elders there, you know, contributing to the conversation. Had community members and elders in the audience brainstorming together. So to me, it was an amazing thing to see. You know, I think all of them were amazing, but to me, I just felt it just felt so relevant and so particular to that community, and so and and really embody the notion of the school recognizing the ways in which it's embedded within community and. So, and then to empower students to then start to do the, you know, do the behaviors and dispositions to disrupt, you know, the oppressive, you know, systems in their community while they're still in school, but outside of school, it's, it was like, it was seeing, it was almost like seeing the result we were looking, that we would want to see, you know, two or three years after they were, you know, getting the audience critical catches in schooling, but seeing it like right then and there in the moment, was is really Exciting to see, and I think the last thing I'll say about this too—that we also thought was really great about these senior um, year-long projects—was that oftentimes, well, students who were you know first years, you know, second years, and third year students often were very much involved, or if not aware, right, of these projects, and so these these senior projects actually became part of the lives of students preceding that, one way or another, either because they were somehow participating or helping, you know, fellow students in getting this work done one way or another, or because they were like giving them models for what they could or should be doing moving forward. So it wasn't just, it had a bigger effect than just on the seniors. It 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 had an an effect of becoming part of the culture of the whole school.
0: Well, what I'm hearing is a thread through all these stories is the, the meaningfulness of the work, you know, it's work that matters. And then the ownership uh, and, and, the students making change happen, schools, sure, the the staff as well, but it's mostly what you know what's happening in those students' lives. And to see this, what you thought would happen two or three years, right, after getting all this training, uh, isn't it a wonderful thing when when uh, young people surprise us and they start doing the stuff we thought they'd do in the future right now? So appreciate you guys uh, coming to the podcast and, and, and sharing these stories with the Ruckus Maker listening. Last thing on critical consciousness I want to really point out, this is so much more than just a feel-good program, and you guys have uh, identified some neat links between critical consciousness and student achievement. So, Scott, do you want to riff on that real quick before we round up the end of our show here? Sure,
2: sure, sure. I'll just say that, um, you know, so, so the original idea of critical consciousness from, you know, from Paulo Ferrer really was really is about societal transformation. hey we need people to be critically conscious in order to, to go out and re, you know reduce oppression within their communities and to, to transform society. And that I think remains sort of an overarching goal and, and frankly, a goal for schools too. like schools have a civic a civic development and a civic education function. We have also found like we and other scholars that, that young people who are critically conscious, also, that also correlates with a number of positive outcomes for the youth themselves. So other researchers have found, for instance, that young people who are critically conscious are more resilient, um, they have better mental health, they're more politically engaged, they're more academically engaged. And then our research as part of this project, um, something we're really excited about, is that we found that the young people in our study who demonstrated the biggest gains in critical consciousness from the beginning of high school to the end of high school, those were also the students who concluded high school with the highest grade point averages. And so so you could say that growth in critical consciousness over four years of high school is predictive of of academic achievement. And and I think that relates to the point you were making, um, Dan, about about the work being really meaningful, that young people who are critically conscious are much more likely to see the work they're doing in in school as equipping them to To go out into the world and work to transform the world, and they see the skills and the content that they're engaging with in school as important and preparatory work for you know for for the the important work for them that lies ahead in their communities in
1: the wider world. If I could add to that, please, like I think that's very important because, and I want to speak to you know educators and leaders in particular because I know that you know teacher leaders and teachers feel very over. They are they're very overworked. They're very stretched, and there's a lot of pressure to meet standards of all kinds, academic and otherwise, right? And I know the feeling that when, you know, you pick up the book or, or, or folks like Scott and I come to your school and we say, hey, you got to focus on critical consciousness, right? That sounds like an extra thing I got to do, right? And we want to make it clear that it's not an extra thing. It's not just something to make, you know, people feel good about themselves. It's not just, it's not about political correctness. The research that Scott's talking about is this is a means to be the, the ends that we are looking for as educators, right? Overall, we're not really producing the, the outcomes we're looking for, right? Either within schools or across the board. And so we need to think about different ways to try and get to those goals. And, and, this is a, and this is a way, a means that's research proven on a many, many levels to get to those outcomes.
0: All right, well, we asked all our guests the same last two questions and looking forward to hear how you guys respond. Uh, Darren, I'll ask you to respond first. What message would you put on all school marquees across the globe if you could do so for just a day?
1: I like this. It would be racial identity development is good teaching. And I can explain that for a minute. Oftentimes, especially the further we move away from education, early education, we sort of tie good teaching to, you know, ability to deliver content. And we and and less and less around helping students, you know, social emotional lead. So I want us to redefine good teaching as, as being able to help students navigate identity development, particularly racial identity development.
0: And Scott, same question to you. What would you put on the school marquee? Well, I'll tell you, I um so
2: I taught in a terrific high school, Fenway High School, in the Boston Public Schools. And Fenway's motto that sort of was on the marquee was work hard, be yourself, do the right thing. And you know and I think over the last you know six or seven years of doing this work with Darren, I think if I were sort of leading leading a school, um, I think my marquee would be similar. it would say, it would say something like, work hard, take care of each other, be the change. Like sort of, you know, like we have the work hard. we have sort of we like perseverance and sort of persistence is absolutely part of learning to be you know an excellent, you know an excellent student. Take care of each other. Like I like the idea of sort of focusing on community and then and then be the change, like really that that critical message about sort of take take the learning that you're doing and and go out and transform society. Because we because we need it. We're depending on 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 the young people to do that work.
0: So you're building the school from the ground up. You're not limited by any resources, your only limitations, your imagination. Since there's two of you, usually I ask for three priorities. We're going to do one each. And in addition to schooling for critical consciousness, what would be your one priority building this imaginary school? Darren, let's start with you.
1: My main priority would be authentic community family uh, partnership or relationship. Our communities and our parents are their their first and probably usually hopefully best teachers. We need to partner with them better to better teach our students.
0: And Scott, what would be your priority? So well,
2: I, and I, I certainly agree with Darren. Maybe just for the sake of for the sake of kind of like you know, sort of offering a, a second perspective. You know, I was a, I was a high school English teacher, and so I mean, I think I would I would I would start with really deep and meaningful essential questions to guide to guide the work that the students are doing curricularly. Like I think that you know, there's questions that really sort of engage students in thinking about like their own identity development, um, and and the role they're going to play in the role they do play in the world, the role they're going to play in the world in which we live. So I think. Um, I just think that when you start with first questions like that, you're you're very likely to end up in a good place.
0: Well, Scott, Darren, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast of everything we talked about today. What's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Darren, what's that one thing?
1: I want uh, the ruckus maker to remember um, to think of your students as reciprocal teachers and learners.
2: And Scott, I would say that um, you know they're, they're for for young people and in particular young people from marginalized groups. Like this type of work to connect students' academic learning to opportunities to recognize and resist oppression is is as Darren said, not just sort of a nice to have, but is a is a crucial sort of opportunity to make the work going on in school feel meaningful, important, and, you know,
0: and, and consequently for
2: students to commit to it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, ruckus maker. If you have a question or would like to connect my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader,